This is Way Family Church, and you're listening to our sermon podcast. We invite you to join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030. We meet at Lawford Middle School in Tucson, Arizona. For more information about who we are, upcoming events, or if you'd like to connect, visit us online at www.wayfamily.church. Now get your Bibles ready, and let's begin. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going to be looking into the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, the Gospel according to Matthew. Now, we, while we were doing our Advent series, I've already briefly gone through chapter one of Matthew, which is the genealogy of Jesus. So if you want to do your own Bible study on the genealogy of Jesus, this is one good way to do it, is study each of those names. Find out who these people are, get a glimpse of what this is actually telling us here. And then during the Christmas season, we look at how the birth of Jesus came to be. So that's the continuation of chapter one in the Gospel of Matthew. And then he gets into chapter two, which we also looked into during the Advent season, and that's the visit of the wise men. And that's where we left off. And then last week, we did an overarching view of what it is. So today, I'm going to continue in chapter two. We're going to look at verse 13 all the way to 23. So turn your Bibles to that. Follow along with me because I'm going to be going verse by verse, section by section. And so my hope is that we have a good idea, a good glimpse of what the author's saying here, what he's communicating, so that we understand what we're meant to understand. Amen? Amen. Okay, so the central message or spotlight, let's say, or persona of the Old Testament. So this is pre-New Testament. Remember, silence is broken by the Gospel of Matthew. That's not to say that that's the earliest gospel that we have. A lot of scholars agree that the gospel of Mark is the most earliest manuscript that we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Matthew is right there. It's the first book in the New Testament. But if we rewind a little bit and if we zoom out, we look at the central message or spotlight of the Old Testament. It's prophecy. It's promises. It's about the coming of the great king who will rule in God's promised kingdom. That's what the old part of the Bible, the front part of the Bible has been about. And now we're entering this new section. But over and over throughout the, entire, the entirety of the Old Testament, we're told of a very special individual who has righteousness, who has wisdom, who has the power, the authority, and the right, not only to reign over Israel, but to reign over the entire world. This is the person that we're anticipating. This is the person that the Old Testament is, 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 uh, is preparing us for. This is the coming king. And this coming king must meet all kinds of qualities. There's all kinds of prerequisites that he needs to be able to fulfill. This is not something that someone could just have decided, hey, I think I'm going to be the the Messiah, and I'm going to go through these prerequisite classes so that I can qualify as the Messiah. And I'll tell you right now, many try. Many people have tried and have self-proclaimed to be the Messiah, and they have failed because they do not qualify according to the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. And so this coming king must qualify. He must. Otherwise, you scratch him off as a false messiah, and and you move on from there. This coming king must fulfill what's written in the scriptures. And and, And for some of these prophecies, it just had to happen. Some of these prophecies, I don't think you could have even prepared for. I don't think there's anything you could do to try to fulfill those if you're not the guy. If you're the guy, then you're the guy. You know, like if a prophecy is said about me, there's really nothing I have to do. I just have to be me. 
You know what I mean? It's like that. There's, there's certain things that only the true and actual king could fulfill of the Old Testament scriptures. You couldn't strategize to fulfill that if you weren't him. And so it's just impossible to do that. Now, the Messiah, the promised king, the Christ, would fulfill all that was promised of him simply because it really is him. That's how you know whether or not you've, you've seen the Messiah. Has he checked off the boxes that were anticipated of him in the Old Testament? A scholar by the name of Alfred Edersheim has found as many as 456 verses in the Old Testament that somehow point to or describe or reference the coming Messiah. And there are other scholars that would tell you, I have found more than 500 of these verses. And some of them are repeats, some of them allude to each other, but there's approximately 456 according to Alfred here. Um, Jesus, in his time here on earth, in his ministry, fulfilled at least 300 of those prophecies. In fact, the rest of them are anticipated to be fulfilled in his return. It's a, no, he, it's not that he didn't fulfill them, is that he hasn't fulfilled them. They're anticipated to be fulfilled, but so far, what I have to say to you and what Matthew's telling us is, you have to understand that Jesus is the king. Before you get into the rest of the gospel of Matthew, understand that who we're talking about is legitimate. You have to understand that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the coming king that we have anticipated. Let me give you some examples of some prophecies that no one else could fulfill, even if they tried, except for Jesus. Example, in Genesis 3.15, we read that this coming great king will have the power to bruise Satan's head. That's a big claim, and that's kind of a little bit of a head-scratcher until you see the life of Jesus and the work that he accomplishes on the cross. Here's another one. The, the, The coming king will have the power to take back man's dominion that was lost through sin and establish a kingdom on earth that will extend into eternity. Another big claim, another tall order. This cannot be said about any Old Testament king. This can only apply to the legitimate great king. There are some prophecies that are just too far-fetched for any normal person. Do you hear hear that? Am I making sense to you? I'm I'm hoping that this is all coming together. Now, Matthew opens his gospel by making it clear that Jesus is legitimately the great king, first, because he fulfills old prophecies, and second, because of how he lives and his, the claims that he makes about himself. Those are high claims, and, and yet he fulfills everything. He actually walks the walk. He doesn't just talk the talk, but he walks the walk. It's, it's amazing. Matthew's saying, look, here's the proof. See it. I'm going to show it to you. So in chapter one of the gospel, according to Matthew, he points out that Jesus fulfilled prophecy through his genealogy. That's what the genealogy is there for. In fact, Matthew starts with a, um, a prophecy fulfillment, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Validation spree. What he's, what he's saying is validated, validated, validated. Beginning with the genealogy of Jesus, the king will be the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus fulfilled it. Then Matthew references the prophecy Isaiah. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel. Jesus is born of a virgin. Fulfilled. This is what Matthew is showing you. He's actually who he says he is. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, another prophecy, and this one from straight out of the, 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 the book of Micah. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judah. 
fulfilled. Jesus is constantly checking off these marks, like he is actually who he says he is. It's a validation spree. So before he tells you more about this great king, Matthew wants you to make sure, and me to make sure, that we understand that Jesus really, really is the great king. So if there's any doubt, this is designed for that to be removed. If there's any concern whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah, this is actually written so that all of that concern would be removed. He really is. So today's sermon title is, The King Fulfills Prophecy. That's how you know he's the actual king. So again, the validation spree continues. Three more prophecies are given through this portion that we're going to look at today. One refers to the escape of Egypt, the other one to the weeping at Ramah, and then the third one to the return of Nazareth. Let's read this passage together. It says this, uh, Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, when, oh, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in the dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that... What was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. You see how Matthew's just laying it down? Here's one prophecy, check. Here's the next one, check. Here's the next one, check. And he lays out how. But unless you're a Jew, it's really hard to understand these prophecies and how he actually fulfills them. And so the first thing I'd like to do is look in that first one, the escaped to Egypt, in this verses 13 through 15. It says this, now, when they had departed, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the wise men. We're coming out of that story of the wise men, the visitation of the child Jesus. Now, the coming of the wise men was undoubtedly an encouragement to Joseph and Mary. You think about what just happened. They come in, and they would have really bolstered up the assurance of what the Lord had said to them about the child, right? They would have really uh, assured them that this really is what the Lord uh, had told them that was going to be. This was the child, the son of God, the king of the earth. And so these wise men certainly would have encouraged them through that just by showing up. And I would say especially in that they brought some awesome gifts, gifts fit for a king. And so I would be encouraged if the wise men showed up to my house to say, hey, this is legit, right? This is awesome. And so that's what's going on here. They had departed. Now, not long after they, they returned to their homes, they go back east wherever they came from. They're warned not to return to Herod. And so the Bible says that this is what happens next. Verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. 
And this time, think about it. Rather than receiving a dose of good news, because up until now, Joseph was only receiving good news from God. You know, hey, this is good. I assure you, I encourage you, I do this, I do that. I'm going to do this. Great things are going to happen. This is not the case. This time, Joseph's received something that is not of joy. It's not of hope, but it's of danger. Did you know that sometimes the word of the Lord is not going to tell us what we want to hear? You know that sometimes we're going to be warned and going to be told that, hey, danger's ahead, danger's coming. This is what Joseph is experiencing right now, and he's been really obedient, and he's been really trusting of the Lord, and this time it's danger, danger ahead. So we have to keep in mind that sometimes the Lord speaks to us in this way. We, we are not to think that the Lord only speaks positive and happy, good, lucky messages to us. This is not to say that this is bad. This is to say that this is maybe uncomfortable for us at times. Do you see that? And so Joseph is told to do this. He says, this is the word of the Lord for Joseph. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until when? Until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. What a bummer. Imagine being Joseph. Imagine having this dream and you heard from the Lord and it was clear to you. And he says, the, kid, the kid's going to be killed if you don't leave. Go, because Herod wants to kill the child. Now, if it were me, if it were me, I'd be like, what do you mean? I thought you said this was God. How could, how could this even happen? If this is God, what kind of threat is it? Why don't you just pulverize the threat? That's, that's not Joseph's response. Joseph's response was in obedience. He was humble, and he moved forward according to the word of the Lord. Just as the wise men were warned against Herod, now Joseph is told that Herod is insane. He's what they say today, big mad. You know, he's upset and he's lost his marbles and you've got to go. But here's something I want you to look at. In fact, that word for flee that you see there, underlined it for you right there, that word comes from the Greek root called fugo. It's where we get our word for fugitive. Jesus is only a little boy and he is now a fugitive of the state. Do you see this? He, he now has to run. The warning is, go now. So fugitive is someone who, who escapes from something or someone. Jesus is now in a place where he's, I would say, Herod's most wanted. And he's only a kid. He's only a little boy. He's only a toddler at this point. Can you imagine that? And you're, and, and you're the parents. Imagine hearing the word that says, uh, someone's out to kill your baby. That's hard, right? How, how would you receive that? Uh, I would probably panic, to be honest with you, and start crying. That's probably what I would do. But the form of this word, word, if we look into it a little bit deeper, it's something that we call an imperative, something you must do immediately. It's a command. It requires immediate action. And this was not an eviction notice. I was going to ask you guys, how many of you guys have ever been evicted? I used to manage apartment buildings, and I used to have to deliver eviction notice. You know, you get 30 days to get out of here. Pay or quit. This is not an eviction notice. This is a get out now. You don't have time. In fact, it tells us that they packed up and right at nighttime and they had to leave and they had to pack them. They just had to go. I can only imagine Mary's heart at this time. It's like, wow, no warning. We just had to go like right now. No warning as far as give us time to pack, give us time to sell the place, give us time to, you know, get out of here and tell our family. No, it was just leave, leave now. And leave to a nearby place where Herod had no jurisdiction. So for them, that would be Egypt. From Bethlehem to Egypt, it's like for us getting up in the middle of the night 
and going to Nogales, taking a hike to Nogales. That's actually the distance, quite, quite approximate. Can you imagine being told maybe around 5 p.m., leave now? Maybe later, because Joseph was asleep, I think. You know, 10 p.m., leave now, get up and leave now. Imagine getting up and having to walk to Nogales. That's, that's what Mary and Joseph had to do in that moment. And Joseph, he did it. And in actuality, this was a good place for him to go. But what I, what I want you to look at here is that he was obedient to it. He trusted in the Lord's providence. He trusted in the Lord's word. And so he decided, I'm just going to do it. The Lord said to go, so I'm going to go. And like I mentioned, Egypt would actually have been a very good place for him to go. And by God's providence, guess what? He could also afford the trip <laughs> because the wise man had just gave them a, a, a bunch of wonderful gifts. And so the Lord instructs Jesus, or Joseph excuse me, to go and to remain there until I tell you, verse 13. Now, here's something that we should consider. God would have protected, he could have protected his son in many other ways and in many other places. He didn't, God had the power to do something amazing, something miraculous, let's say, to protect the son. But God chose to protect him by very ordinary and, and unmiraculous means. Joseph and his family, they, they, they got to, I was going to say Nogales, they got to Egypt one step at a time, you know? No magical transportation, no, no Philip moment where Philip was just transported, you know, and appeared somewhere else. They took one step at a time. Joseph was just faithful. He was obedient. And, and, and then I know nothing about what life was like when they got there. I have no idea what life was like for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in Egypt. doesn't tell us. So I'm going to say something. My wife is not expecting this. As my wife would say, if it doesn't tell us, who cares? Not important. So what do we do? We move on to what is important. <laughs> we'll go to verse 15. It says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. In fact, he's quoting from Hosea 11.1. 1. So until now, this was one of those head-scratcher moments if you're the reader. If you're listening to Matthew's gospel here, you would have probably asked, how can the Messiah be born of Bethlehem, of Judea, and also come out of Egypt? That's kind of a head-scratcher. It's like, how could that work? But see, Jesus is no ordinary man. This is the promised Messiah. And so he did... Uh, just what, what had happened back in the Old Testament in the time of the Exodus, this is actually a parallel, if, if you notice it, if you look at it carefully. The flight to Egypt for Jesus and his family was about much more than simply running away from Herod. This was about painting a picture. This is about anticipating something. The Exodus of Israel from Egypt is a type of Jesus' return from Egypt as a young child. And here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, the passage we just read, what Jesus is doing is he's inaugurating a new Exodus. But this time, it's not just the exodus from Egypt, which Egypt has always been a, a, a type and shadow of sin, of darkness. Jesus is inaugurating a new exodus, an exodus of the slavery to sin. This is what he's doing, and this is a fantastic study. I'm not going to get deeper into this, but this is something for you guys to look into if you so choose. So keep that in mind. But out of Egypt, I called my son, that's the prophecy through Jesus, fulfilled. See that? Now, the second fulfilled prophecy out of this passage today is the weeping at Ramah, and that's verses 16 through 18. And this is in regards to Herod's brutal response to the new and great king. So Herod's response 
was a slaughter in Bethlehem. And this was not only one of those bloodiest acts that goes under the book of Herod, of the things that Herod did, but this was certainly one of the cruelest things that he had ever did. In fact, no one really does those kind of things. This is tragic. The last, thing, last time I, I read that something like that happened was in Exodus through that Pharaoh who was afraid of the Israelites growing beyond their, their capacity, let's say. And so he does something very cruel. And you probably have, have heard it said this, that a person is identified not only by his friends, but also his enemies. A person is not only identified by his friends, but also his enemies. See, Matthew introduces this theme of hostility for the first time here. So far, the Christmas story is happy, it's hopeful, it's good. And guess what? There's also hostility. Wow, what a shift of events here. And so he introduces this thing. And as we progress in the book of Matthew, we'll see that he gets more focused and there's more hostility towards Jesus. And it starts when he's a baby. Can you imagine that? Hostility against Jesus starts when he's still a baby. You know, Satan's a liar and a murderer, and he is described like that in John chapter 3, 44. Likewise, King Herod was the same. He was a murderer and a liar, and he was selfish, and he was just wanting to take down anything that was in opposition. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious So Herod, look at this, Herod felt offended and he felt mocked and that the wise men didn't return to him. He told them, hey, when you find the Jesus, come back to me and let me know where he's at. But the Jesus were obedient and they they obeyed the Lord over Herod and they didn't. They bypassed Herod. And so he felt offended. He felt tricked about this. And his response was this. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were just two years old or under. That's messed up. Can you imagine that? Let me ask you this, a little bit of self-reflection, because sometimes we think, that's messed up. I can't believe he did that. But let's take a moment here, a time out, and ask yourself, how do I respond when I feel offended or mocked? How do I respond? Am I actually any different from Herod? Do I commit murder as well? And I don't mean like a physical murder, but I mean murder in the heart. You know, Jesus always up to the ante, but how do we respond? Do we, do we respond a lot like Herod, perhaps? Are you one to unleash on the innocent just because you're angry? So this is a good moment for us to reflect and to consider, how, how do I respond? This is, this is what the Word of the Lord does. It challenges us. It corrects us where we need correction. And so it was not the wise men's motive to trick Herod. That's not what they were intending to do. As I mentioned, they were just walking according to the will of the, of the Lord. They were being obedient to the Lord. And so Herod, of course, he doesn't care about right or wrong in this situation because he's so conceited about himself, right? He's, he feels threatened. He feels offended. And, and, and he, he makes it all about himself. And that's all that matters is how he feels. And, and in actuality, it's not about him. It's all about Jesus. You know, we have to remind ourselves, this is about Jesus. Jesus is doing something in our life. He's, he's, he's fulfilling whatever he's going to fulfill. I need to take a step back and consider that. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And this is what the prophecy says in Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, I think it is impossible for us to understand this without a little bit of history. So if you don't mind, I'm going to give you a little background here as to what is he saying here? What does this mean? 
In Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 20, we read of the first mentioned to Bethlehem. In fact, that's the first time you get mentioned to this place called Bethlehem. And it's actually a direct connection to the death and burial of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. You know, do you have a favorite wife? (laughs) Had a couple of wives. This was Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. It just, it just always uh, is amusing to me that Jacob had more than one wife. I just can't even imagine that. Um, so Rachel had died giving birth in this place, actually, and she had got, died giving birth to a son whom she had named Ben-Oni, but his father Jacob had called him Benjamin, which meant son of my right hand. He named him that because Rachel died. That he, she was his favorite. And so Benjamin means son of my right hand. And so both of these names, both Rachel and Benjamin, relate to Jesus in that he was a man of sorrows like Rachel was. If you think about Rachel's life, she was a woman of sorrow. She was acquainted with grief just as Christ was. And now Jesus is the son of the the right hand of God. Do you see that? There's this beautiful connection here. And then so Jacob then puts up a pillar to mark Rachel's grave, which is in Bethlehem. So for Jacob, Bethlehem was not a good place. Bethlehem was severely associated with grief, with death. When we think of Bethlehem, we don't think of that. We think of Jesus. We think of Christmas time. We think of life, new life, right? New, new hope. But for Jacob, this was a dark place. This was like the elephant graveyard in the Lion King. You don't go there. You know, this is, this is the, the way that he would have associated Bethlehem. And then there's Jeremiah's prophecy 600 years before Jesus is born. And this prophecy came about in the time that Jerusalem was being taken captain by Babylon. It was ransacked. Jerusalem was destroyed. And a lot of people were taken captive. And a lot of people were just slaughtered. And mothers were watching this. They were watching their sons be killed or be exiled. They were being taken captive. And and what's interesting is anyone who was taken captive was taken and held in a place called Ramah. That's where it was. So if you went to Ramah, there would be a lot of weeping, a lot of grieving, because mothers and families would see their sons getting ready to either be slaughtered or exiled. And so there's this this connection here of weeping at Ramah. And so let's read that prophecy again to see if it makes a different, if it has a different light for us now. It says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now let's consider Rachel one more time. Rachel would, knew exactly what it meant to lose a child. Do, do you remember that Jacob's sons came back? And they said, is this your son's tunic? Is this your son's coat of many colors? Can you imagine Rachel's heart? They brought something that looked obliterated, that looked massacred. It was bloodied. And the news was a wild animal attacked your son and he's now dead. Can you imagine Rachel's heart? She was well acquainted with grief and sorrow. She probably grieved at the thought or or, or just the realization that she had lost her son. You know, she never saw him again. So as far as Rachel was concerned, Joseph was dead to her. And so this is the kind of uh, uh, message that Jeremiah is proclaiming here. This is what Jeremiah has in mind, you know. And then through Jesus, even as he's a toddler, this prophecy is fulfilled. And this is a weird one because this isn't a happy prophecy. This is a dark one, if you ask me. And yet Jesus fulfills all of them, not just the good ones, but the ones we don't like as well, because he really is who he says he is. So the prophecy fulfilled. 
And even while Jesus, the king, is still a child, you know, Rachel, meaning Bethlehem, had cause to weep again. Fulfilled. But then, look at this, type in shadow, the king himself would later weep over uh, Jerusalem because of his people, because his people would reject him and the affliction they would impose on him. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 19, verse 41 through 44, it said that Jesus would grieve, would weep, would lament. It says, and he drew near and he saw the city. He's talking about Jerusalem. And he wept over it. So he too grieved and wept. He's a man of many sorrows. And you see how these prophecies are fulfilled through Jesus Christ. This is awesome. But then I kept reading because um, Matthew only mentions Jeremiah. He only quotes Jeremiah chapter 115, that prophecy in regards to weeping and lamentation. But I kept reading right there in Jeremiah 31 and 16. Look at what it says. This is actually very hopeful. It's very interesting. And I'm personally surprised that Matthew didn't include it. But it's also very obvious that he knew exactly what he was doing and talking about. Look at Jeremiah 31, 16 through 17, which is the continuation of that prophecy. It says, thus says the Lord... Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. And there shall come back from the land, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. That's the remaining of the prophecy there. What an epic transition for our final point. It's like he knew exactly what he was saying. Now let's look at that next and fi- oh, the next and final prophecy just in this section here, the return to Nazareth. This is verses 19 through 23. Again, the last one here. But when Herod died, it says in verse 19, who was, by the way, the most immediate danger to Jesus, he's gone. That immediate danger is now over. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in Egypt saying, Where, where's Joseph right now? He's in Egypt, okay? He's still there. The angel of the Lord appears to him and he says, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought to the child's life are dead. It's not just Herod, but also those people who were working under him. Jesus had enemies. Jesus was a fugitive, but these people are now gone. They're dead. Verse 21, and he rose, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. Wow. You know, I'm fascinated by Joseph's obedience. Joseph is doing exactly what the Lord is calling him to do. As far as we can see, there's no complaining. He had full confidence in the word of God. He trusted him. Joseph was so obedient to the Lord's command. Look what he did. He stayed in Egypt until he was told to return. I don't know if Joseph liked Egypt. I don't know if Mary liked Egypt. Maybe they hated it. Maybe they loved it. It didn't matter. Joseph was committed to the word of God. He was committed to do what the Lord said when he said. And to me, that's super encouragement, super encouraging because I sometimes do things my way. You know what I mean? But, but Joseph was obedient to the Lord's command, and he did exactly as he was told. And again, uh, note that up to this point, there isn't a specific instruction as to where to go to Israel. He didn't say go back to Bethlehem necessarily. He just says go back to Israel. And so upon arrival, Joseph does. He goes back and verse 21, or excuse me, verse 22 says that once he got there, he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod. So he was afraid to go there. I don't know how many of you guys are like me, but the first question that came up to me is, 
Why would Joseph be afraid of Archelaus? Anybody wonder that? It's just me, right? Why, why would Joseph be afraid of Archelaus? I thought Herod was the threat. What's the deal with Archelaus? Well, after a little bit of research, Josephus, the historian, actually sheds light on this issue. Herod was dead, but Archelaus posed a more general threat. So you see, Herod was a threat to Jesus, specifically to Jesus. Archelaus was a threat to anybody because he was a crazy man if you consider uh, his life. Here's what had happened. There was an insurrection that had broke out during a Passover while Mary and Joseph and Jesus were in Egypt. And during that insurrection, which again, after the death of Herod, so Archelaus is ruling, he dealt with it in a, in a manner much like Herod would have done. He went in there and just killed people. He just went in there and slaughtered people. In fact, uh, Josephus tells us that he, he took out, what was it, over 3,000 people much, many of them uh, were Passover pilgrims. They were just visiting for the Passover. And they had no part of the revolt. They had no, no, nothing to be guilty of. And yet Archelaus goes and just says, death to all. You die, you die, you die, you die, because I don't like you. That's the kind of attitude that Archelaus had. So with that in mind, I'd be afraid too. If I knew that Archelaus, this man was ruling, I wouldn't want to go back to Israel. I'd be, now I'm not just concerned for my son, I'm concerned for myself and for my wife. Do you see that? This is the, the thing that Joseph is facing. But Joseph is warned about this in a dream again, and he goes, and he goes to the district of Galilee, and he lived in a city called Nazareth, also known as, this is my note, the hood. Nazareth was the hood. This is not, this is not Beverly Hills, Israel. This was the hood in Israel. You know, but why would he go there? Why would Nazareth go there? Well, because this is actually where they're from. <laughs> Mary and Joseph are hoodlums. <laughs> you know, that's where they met. That's where they were betrothed. And that's where they departed to go to, 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 to be signed up for the census that Caesar Augustus had called to. That's where they departed from. That's where their family is. And so they go back to where they felt safe. And so it is where Jesus lived the rest of his adolescence, the rest of his youth in the hood in Nazareth. And in fact, Nazareth was a very demeaning thing to be called. If you were called the Nazarene, it means like you were like a hooligan. You were a hoodlum. You were a whatever it is that you want to call it. You didn't want to be called the Nazarene. Nothing good came from Nazareth, you know? Verse 23, and so that was what was spoken by the prophets. And this, all this happened so that it would be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Wow. And so here he goes again, he's only a child, and he's fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Now, my wife and I have been recently watching a show called The First 48. Are you familiar with that? It's like a, a homicide show. You have the first 40, 48 hours to figure out what's going on, otherwise the case kind of goes cold. We're watching this show, and there's this one particular neighborhood in South Florida called The Pork and Beans. And so they say, Officer so-and-so goes into the pork and beans, and out of the pork and beans, it's the weirdest thing. Like, why would you call a neighborhood the pork and beans? Nazareth was the pork and beans. And it was obviously a derogatory name for this place. This is the place that Jesus, the king of the earth, the king of the universe, goes and grows up in, the pork and beans. Right? And so, again, here we are, Jesus growing up like a hooligan, let's say. But he wasn't a hooligan. This is just a perception that people might have had. In fact, when the prophecy was read of people of old, this is what they would have thought. Oh, he would have been despised. He would have been thought as rough or disliked. 
but they never actually probably would have thought that he would actually come from Nazareth. And so Jesus ups the ante, and he sure full on is, is raised in, in Nazareth. And so the young Jesus spends the rest of his youth in Nazareth, and it says, a Nazarene king out of Egypt, born in Bethlehem. How does that happen? He just showed you. Fulfilled. That's how. And so what does all this mean for us? Because so far I've given you just a bunch of information. So far all I've done is help you understand this passage. But what does this mean for us? This information is great and it's helpful to understand. But what do I do for, with this? First, let's consider, let's say, the good guys from the bad guys. I think this will be helpful for us. I'm just going to say the good guys, quote-unquote, from the bad guys, quote-unquote. Yeah, the good guys have clearly, I would say, I would, I would call them the wise men would be the good guys, Joseph, Mary, and, of course, Jesus. Let's, let's classify them as the good guys. Yes? Everyone agrees? All right. The bad guys I'm going to classify as Herod, Archelaus, and anyone who works for them. We all agree? Okay, so we have two categories to here, two, 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 two columns here. What, sep- what separates the good guys from the bad guys? Let's consider that. Whom would you identify with? I bet you that you're quick to say I'm one of the good guys. I bet you. I, I am that guy. I, I'm, I'm someone who thinks more highly of myself than I ought to. You know, but, but who, who do you think that you affiliate more or, or more like? You know, if we're honest, at the core of who we are, we're probably more like Herod. We probably would identify more like Herod. We think, man, that guy was ugly. But man, if we really took a deep, side, a deep look into our hearts, we would be surprised and shocked how similar we could be to someone like that. And so here's what happens. <clears throat> Instead of bowing in full surrender before the great king, I'd say that we're too afraid of how Jesus is going to rule our lives. And that's exactly what happened with Herod. And a lot of people have this problem. They have a problem with submitting to Jesus the king first. They don't really trust that Jesus is the king. That's a problem. Second, once they come to the realization that Jesus is the ruler, they have a hard time letting go of their lives and surrendering it to him. This is exactly what Herod did. We have a surrender and, and humble heart problem. You know, we have to realize that this is the issue that we deal with, and we have to be okay with Jesus coming in and reigning over our lives. Otherwise, we, we will just kind of keep that castle secured, the kingdom of self, not allowing Jesus to rule over it. Perhaps we're afraid of, again, Jesus taking over our lives, our plans, our personal desires. We don't want to give those up because we don't trust him. That's what's going on. So the truth is that in our minds and in our hearts, we have all rejected the great King Jesus. And that's the truth. You know why? Because it's called sin. In fact, this is exactly what it means to be a sinner, to reject everything that is good and everything that is righteous. And yet, this is precisely whom Jesus came to save, the sinner. We have to consider that. We have to actually think of this. But look at the difference. Again, the good guys versus the bad guys. The good guys, look what they did. This is what separates them. They did well in that they were obedient to the word of the Lord. They trusted in, in the word of God. They trusted God. That's what, what made them righteous people. That's why they're notable. And, and we ought to be like that in the sense that what makes us good is not ourselves and our own power and might. It is the fact that we're able to humble ourselves before the Lord and be obedient to his commands. That's good. That's helpful. That's great. As opposed to the bad guys who missed it. 
in that they, react, they rejected the idea of surrender and they exalted themselves and denied the true king. Do you see the difference? This is, if we think about it, we're doing like, man, I'm often like the bad guys, rejecting the word of the Lord and doing things my way. Now look at what Luke 14, 11 tells us. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a promise of the Lord. It's okay for us to come in humility towards the Lord, to submit ourselves to the Lord. There's something in the Bible. The Lord says such and such. We don't like it. Guess what? We have to still submit to it. This is really hard for a lot of people, especially people who are American and are taught to trust in themselves, you know? But this is important for us. Matthew is showing us that Jesus really is the Messiah, the King, the great King. He's no ordinary King. He's someone that you can trust. Folks, you can trust Jesus. This is what Matthew's showing us. You can trust him. You can have full confidence in that he truly is the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the promised King, the anticipated King. It's difficult to trust people that you don't know, yes? It's difficult to trust people and you don't know their credentials. Say you're seeing a doctor and you have no idea this person didn't even go and graduate from medical school and whatnot. It's difficult to trust that person. Credentials are important. Jesus has the credentials. That's what Matthew's showing you right here. Jesus is legitimate. You can trust him and you should. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This is a promise from the Lord. See, God's plan for our lives is not, they're not always clear. They're not always clear to us, especially, but know that Jesus, or because of Jesus, because he is the king who fulfills prophecy, he's also the king who fulfills promises, who comes through with anything that he says, and so we can trust in the Lord uh, with all of our hearts, because he really is who he says he is. And I'll leave you with this, a passage from 2 Peter 3.9, it says this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some would count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the Lord's patience over us is actually an act of kindness and love. That's the love of our King. We can be patient with the plans that the Lord has for us because he's patient with us so that we would come to repentance and salvation. See, Jesus truly is the King who fulfills prophecy, the King that is certainly validated. We need to submit to him, and we need to trust him and know him with all of your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Help us, Lord Jesus, just be more confident in you and that we do submit to you wholeheartedly, Father, and trust you wholeheartedly, Lord Jesus, with our lives. Lord, you're, you're welcome to come and invade our, our hearts. You're welcome to post that flag Father, that declares that we are of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for your servant Matthew who has diligently just pointed out the facts, the facts that you are who you say you are. So help us lean on you and trust you. Help us, Lord, with our doubts, with our reservations. Help us continue to see, Father, just the, the, the validity, Lord, that is found in you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name.